What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This entire case, everything important to it took place in two hours, between seven and nine on a Sunday morning. And what the jury ultimately comes to believe about those two hours is going to determine whether Brent goes to prison for life or is returned to his family. He was told, you're not innocent. We've got an eyewitness. It's niggers like you that make me mad these days. Detective Glover hit him in the stomach, not once, but twice, and hit him in his face. This is True Crime Brewery. I'm Jill. And I'm Dick. Today's episode, Murder on a Sunday Morning. So Murder on a Sunday Morning is an HBO documentary about a 15-year-old boy who's falsely accused of first-degree murder. Two really dedicated public defenders, Anne Finnell and Pat McGinnis, fought and won an acquittal for him and ended up finding who the real murderer was in the case. Both Dick and I found this case very troubling the police had both written and oral confessions from the young man, Brenton Butler, but in his interviews with his public defenders, he said that he was beaten for the confession. The husband of the victim had identified Brenton as the killer, although his initial description was significantly different. The detectives had done essentially no investigation of the case. He was interrogated without his parents or an attorney from about nine in the morning until 10 o'clock that night. Brenton's parents had been looking for him and had filed a missing persons report, so he'd been gone for a while. When he finally was allowed to call his parents, he told them he had confessed to first-degree murder. Big surprise to the parents, I guess. So it's a case that shows us the fallacy of witness identification, an issue we've addressed in other podcasts. Many people don't understand how unreliable witness identification can be. Now, the strong point in this film is the frequency of false confessions. Most people don't believe that they would confess to something they didn't do under any circumstances. But results of social science studies show that most people will in fact confess to things they didn't do under the right circumstances. Like, let's get this over with. So what I'm going to do right now before we get to the beer is read, we have three five-star reviews this week. And the first one is from Aaron527. Aaron says, ha 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 ha, I can't help it, but I love it. When I first listened to this podcast, I thought I was listening to an SNL sketch. I think it's because I'm used to 
listening to hardcore true crime podcasts, and these hosts sound somewhat innocent compared to those, and the podcasts sound slightly homemade. However, after listening to a couple of episodes, I've decided I absolutely love these people. They're a refreshing change from other hosts who take themselves too seriously, and they're actually revealed some details I've never heard on other podcasts before. So go Dick and Jill. I hope to donate to this podcast as soon as I'm able. I encourage people to listen to at least a couple of episodes before they make a judgment call. That was nice. Yeah. So thank you, Erin527, and welcome to the brewery. I think she nailed it in terms of us being innocent and amateur. I was flattered by it. It's a nice it was one. a nice review. Yes. And then the next one I have is by B.A. Martin32. B.A. Martin32 says, Love this podcast. I started listening to the three-part podcast on the staircase about a week ago, and I've listened to all of the other podcasts. Keep up the good work. Yay. Thank you, B.A. Martin32, and welcome to the brewery. Our next five-star review is by Zabara Station. Zabara Station, I'm probably not saying that right. And it says, new to the show, five stars. And this kind of cracks me up. He says, I'm going to give it another try first time. I wasn't blown away, but I'm not scared off either. So not exactly a rave review, but it's five stars and I'll take it. So thank you, Zia Barristan, and welcome to the brewery to you as well. Five stars and he wasn't blown away. I know, if he really likes it. Yeah, do we get ten stars then? I don't know, we'll see. We'll see what he does. All right, I'm waiting <laughs> for him. Okay. All right, so why don't you go ahead and give us your beer review. I hear it's a beer from Florida, which is appropriate. Yeah, so this crime was committed in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm going on the opposite coast, the Gulf Coast, to Cigar City Brewing, and I'm going to do Highlight IPA, which is kind of their flagship beer. They, they make a great number of beers, and they have other beers that are really good. Some of my favorites are Maduro Brown and Marshall Zukov Russian Imperial Stout. But I think the Highlight is kind of their first beer and one that I will always hold dear in my heart. <laughs> so, when it's poured from the can, it's a little hazy bit of copper color. There's a nice sized white head and a little bit of lace. The aroma is all citrus and tropical fruit. And the taste is the same. Grapefruit, little mango, and some caramel. Wonderful IPA, something that people really love and will seek it out, not just the Floridians. Right. It's a good summer beer, right? It's a good anything Something you beer. might drink on your porch in the summer? I would drink it in my house with a fire going in the winter. Oh, but would you drink it with a mouse? <laughs> in my house. <laughs> okay. Well, good review. Thank you. Now let's take our stools and our glasses and let's just slide on down to the quiet end of the bar for our true crime discussion. Let's do that. Okay. It's a good beer to do it with. I think so. Now James Stevens and his wife Mary Ann were vacationing in a Ramada Inn in Jacksonville, Florida on a Sunday morning in 2000. 
at the same time fifteen-year-old brenton butler was at his home saying good morning and taking care of his dog now while leaving the hotel after their continental breakfast that morning the stevens were confronted by a man with a gun who ended up shooting and killing marianne now it was two and a half hours later that mr stevens would identify brenton butler as the man who shot his wife mr stevens initial description of the shooter was a black skinny male six feet tall and twenty to twenty five years old wearing dark shorts a dark shirt with a fisherman's hat brenton was walking down the street near the hotel on his way to apply for a job at blockbuster video the police who first approached brenton said they picked him up for questioning because he was a black male and being that they didn't have much to go on they asked brenton if he would come and talk to the detectives because there'd been a murder down the street so brenton said sure and he was driven to the hotel in the back of the police cruiser the detectives brought mr stevens to the car and seeing brenton in the back of the police cruiser just two and a half hours after witnessing the fatal shooting of his wife mr stevens identified brenton as his wife's killer and there's a ton of difficulties with this identification yeah here's a guy who just lost his wife he's looking at a kid sitting down in a police car and he's black so he's going to say yeah that's the one who did it but he didn't stand up no brenton wore glasses there was no mention of glasses when brenton was 15 years old and he's a lot younger than the original identification mm-hmm. so there's there's not a good way you can explain that this kid was the perpetrator of the crime. But that's how the police viewed it, because the eyewitness said that's him. And as we're going to see, this is how the whole case unfolds, is that they have a positive ID, and they're going to go from there and not work on any other theories as to who could be the perpetrator. Did you want to go into now what you learned about eyewitness identification i know that it's a popular subject with you okay let us know what you found out here because you know i always feel like eyewitnesses are probably unreliable or minimally reliable at best yeah so there was a study many years ago american psychologist that said that at least over 50 percent of eyewitness identifications were inaccurate and the reasons that made them inaccurate were if it was a cross-racial identification, as in this case, mm-hmm. a white uh, person identifying a black perpetrator. Stress, certainly. His wife just got killed a couple hours before he was stressed. can get much more stressful than that, I can think, you? I no. He held presence, a gun to them. Presence of a weapon makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, eyewitnesses' memory declines pretty rapidly with time and there's other factors Uh, the elderly in particular are less reliable in making identification so here we've got a bunch of things that would contribute to uh, an inaccurate identification of Brenton as the uh, killer Mm -hmm. okay yeah and not to mention how disturbing it is that just because he's a black male, that's why he's brought over there and he's subjected to being identified by a witness right there on the spot in a compromising position, which is very suggestive that he did something wrong. He's sitting in a cruiser. Oh, no kidding. 
It's so, just, um, it's really baffling. He was guilty of being black. He yeah. just happened to be in the wrong spot at the wrong time. But I would think that the witness, Mr. Stevens, probably thought, well, they wouldn't have put him in the cruiser and brought him here unless he was found with a gun or something that made them think he did it. Oh, no kidding. So I don't really blame Mr. Stevens entirely. Well, no. I mean, again, this guy just lost his wife a couple hours before, so he's probably going nuts with grief. Mm -hmm. And he sees a kid who's black, who's the same race as the killer, in a police car, so he's figuring, okay, they already caught the guy, so that must be who it is. Exactly. And I think once that someone identifies an assailant, a murderer, whatever, I think once you've made that identification, there is that consistency, that foolish consistency, that you feel like, well, I've said it now, no matter what, I'm going to stick with this. Right. And from a police standpoint, they've just gotten a guy whose wife was killed less than three hours previously, mm -hmm. and he says, that's the guy who did it. So from their standpoint, it's an open and shut case. They got the guy. Well, they don't have any other evidence, so if they have someone that identifies him, that they probably feel like that's the best they're going to do. Well, I don't know if Let's it's, go with figuring it. it's the best they're going to do, but they got an <laughs> eyewitness who says that's the one who did it, and it's fresh in his mind, and they're not going to look any further because they got the guy. Okay, which I think is totally wrong, but we'll continue with the story. Well, yes, it that's is. That's not I the mean, way police work should be done. It, it should be done with due diligence and making sure that that actually is the person. Absolutely. Because so, you can't rely on the eyewitness. Oh, I don't think you can, but they certainly did. Yeah. So, Brenton, 15 years old, he's just walking down the street, and he's picked up because he's an African-American male. The police officer who picked him up and brought him over actually admitted that that's the only reason they approached him, because he was a young black male. The witness sees him in that suggestive situation, you know, thinking, well, he's in the back seat, he must have done something. And he's brought down to the police station for questioning right away then, and eventually arrested. Well, sure. So if you'd been a young black female, you would have been fine. Yeah, or white, anything but a young black male at that point. Right. Right. So Brenton is interrogated at the police station, and without his parents. His parents aren't called in, and an attorney isn't being provided for him. Yeah, now, how can you do that? I mean, I know this was 15, 16 years ago, but don't they have to have permission from the parents or somebody to talk to the kid? I don't think you have to, and I could go into other cases about that. I don't think you have to in the United States. I know in Europe you do, most countries in Europe anyway that I know of. You cannot interview a minor without a parent present. But that's not the case in the United States. Oh, mm -hmm. well, it would seem to me that that'd be a Yes, I believe it should be, but it really isn't at this point. And he was given read his rights when he was arrested, and Detective Williams, one of the detectives who was interviewing him, said that they could provide an attorney, but guess what? They never made any efforts to get the attorney and bring him in there. So he said, we'll get you an attorney? He said, you have the right to an attorney. And later on, Breton had asked, you know... Am I getting an attorney? Oh, yeah, we're working on it. 
Have you called my parents? Yes, we've called your parents. But when they called his parents, they didn't tell them that he was there. <laughs> the parents had filed a missing person report that day because this is a reliable kid. He's been gone since the morning. They're frantic, thinking he got hit by... When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. A car or something. So there's already some evidence that the police aren't doing their due diligence in terms of investigating this case. Right. I mean, they, they should have notified the parents pretty quickly that they had the son in custody. Absolutely. And they should make sure that he has his rights read to him and that he can obtain a lawyer. Well, you know, the funny thing is you can't, um, you can't give a vaccine without a parent's signature if someone's under 18. That's right. right. There's many things you can't do, but apparently you can interrogate and arrest a child without the parent knowing. It's just crazy. It is. So... He's interrogated, and by the time Brenton calls his parents that night, he has been beaten, and he has signed a confession. So he calls to his mom and says, you know, he's crying. He says, I've confessed to first-degree murder. I signed a paper. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And, of course, his mom's devastated as well, and she says, Brenton, we'll do whatever we can to get you out, you know, to help you. That's not going to happen. Now, Brenton, we find out later, he's never been in trouble before. And his parents said, you know, he might go out and run an errand or something, but he's not the kind of kid that's going to stay away all day. So how long was he interrogated? Um, well, he was first brought in at 9 a.m. He was interrogated. Right. I think he was arrested around noon. He was interrogated by Detective Williams and Darnell until yeah. about 5.30, and then that's when they called in Detective Glover and told him that Brenton was ready to confess. Even though Brenton had not said anything about confessing, Brenton had repeatedly repeatedly said that he had nothing to do with this. Right, he was pretty steadfast in asserting his innocence. Yes, but these two detectives called in Detective Glover to come in, and I guess Detective Glover is like the closer. He would come in and get the confessions. So yeah. he came in around 5.45, and Brendan signed the confession later that night before he called his mom. Yeah, and we'll talk about this later, but this was after the kid had been taken out of the jail and into mm -hmm. the woods in search of the gun that was used and beaten, and then he confessed. And he didn't actually confess. He signed a paper that was written by one of the police. So yeah. We'll get to that. Okay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the opening statements we saw in the documentary? So in the opening statements, the prosecution, of course, goes first. And her major points were that Brenton approached this couple with a gun and wow. asked for the lady's purse. And she was hesitant in giving it to him or something. He shot her in the face. And he admitted to the shooting during questioning. Right. The defense said, 
in their opening statement. He couldn't have done it because, number one, it was Sunday morning. He showered, brushed teeth, took care of his dog, was walking to fill out a job application at Blockbuster. This was all between 7.30 and 9, so he was home. They started questioning him at 9 a.m. The police started questioning him at 9 a.m. They went until 5 p.m. Detective Glover interrogated him, told him he's guilty, says they're going into the woods to look for the gun, took him out into the woods in his handcuffs and smacked him. Mm -hmm. Hit him twice in the gut and once in the face. Right. And this was um, Glover, who was the only African-American detective involved. And he came in later in the afternoon, and he claimed that when he came in, Brenton said, I'm so glad to see you, and hugged him. Right. Totally crazy. It is. I mean, 15-year-olds don't hug anybody. Exactly. Maybe their mothers. Not but some strange 240-pound guy working no. for the police. No, and it's not like, oh, I'm so glad you're here because you're black like me. Right. And you're going to save me. That's just utter bullshit. Yep. So Detective Glover is interrogating him, telling him he's guilty, he's going to get him. Well, they make up this story, I think, about going into the woods to look for the gun. Detective Glover claims that Brenton had said he threw the gun into the woods. So if you think about that, the gun would have been, what, like an arm's throw into the woods. How? What's the farthest that would be? 20 feet or so? Yeah, probably. And it depends on how many trees and how thick the woods are. Exactly. Not, not deep into the woods. No. So Detective Glover, as well as Detective Williams and Darnell, go to the woods. And Detective Williams and Darnell stay out by the street. And they have Detective Glover taking Brenton into the middle of the woods. Now Brenton is shackled. His Hands are cuffed, and there's a chain to his feet. So Detective Glover is leading him out by what they call the belly belt, which is the part that goes around his waist, taking him into the woods, and this is at dusk. Right. So what are the, what's the likelihood of finding a gun in thick woods near dark? Right. No anyway. lights. Nope. And if that was the case, why wouldn't all of the detectives go in looking? With lights. <laughs> right. Lights I mean, might be a good idea. It's pretty dark. Yep. Yep. So why are these two detectives separating themselves from Glover? It seems to me it was planned out that Glover would take him into the woods and beat him and intimidate him until he was willing to confess. Well, that's the impression. Mm -hmm. And I'll just mention probably that the uh, documentary is certainly biased towards the defendant. I don't know if it's bias. I mean, that's who we're following around for it, the It still looks film. like the reason that Glover took him into the woods was to extract a confession from him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Out of sight of the others so they could have plausible deniability, as they say. That's right. So um, James Stevens comes up to the witness stand and identifies Brenton as the killer, and he is cross-examined. And there's some confusion there in the cross-examination because Stevens, in the deposition, had said that he didn't see a logo on the assailant's shirt. Now, there was, when we see the shirt that Brenton was wearing, the entire front of the shirt is a big Nautica logo. Right. And also, 
Brendan's little brother that morning had seen Brendan in a Nautica shirt with the logo. Yeah, but the eyewitness that his wife was killed didn't see it. Didn't see it. At least not in the original deposition. That's right. But he tries to change that a little. Well, in court, he says that he saw the logo the second time when he identified Brenton. And there's only so much cross-examination you can do. You don't want to look like you're bullying a victim, because he is a victim. He certainly is. Yes, but you do need to get your point across, and he did not do very well, I think. No, I think the defense made their point. I think they did. This Nordica logo is huge. I mean, you can't miss it. That's right. Maybe you don't know what it is, but you can say there's some kind of logo on the front of his shirt. Mm -hmm. And he actually could not remember a lot of the things about the description when he was cross-examined in the court. He didn't remember if he had said that the man was wearing shorts. He couldn't remember what kind of hat. You know, I felt a little bad for the guy, but he definitely wasn't giving us any reliable information here. No, but this is several months after the event. Yes. And your memory gets a little slippery. Slippery. <laughs> like that. Okay. Well, between Brendan's house and where he was walking when he was going to the Blockbuster, police um, didn't talk to any neighbors. There was a gas station between those two places. And no one that was working or at the gas station was interviewed. Also, another thing that the defense attorney brought up was that no one did a search of Brenton's home. There was no search warrant. You would think they were implying that Brenton would have gone. Well, they were doing more than implying. They were saying that Brenton probably went home, fed his dog, changed his clothes, and then came walking down the street after. Well, that's to fit their timeline. Right. They know when the murder occurred. Yes. So they have to make it so that Brenton went out, committed the crime, then went back and did his stuff and then left. Rather than saying, well, Brenton was home the whole time. And he he left after the murder occurred on his way to Blockbuster. Right. But they don't seem to be making any efforts to back up these claims. They could have spoken to neighbors and asked if they saw Brenton leave the house. Plenty of people would have seen him walking down the street at certain times. Nobody was interviewed, and this was admitted by the police, that they did not interview anyone except Brenton. Right. And I'm not sticking up for the police, but they got this eyewitness who says that's the one. So they don't do anything else to check on it because they have an eyewitness. Mm -hmm. And as we've said before, and we'll say again, I'm sure the eyewitness report is not reliable. Right. But the Jacksonville Police Department relied on it, and they didn't do anything. Yeah. So Brenton's parents testified that they had seen Brenton in the home that morning. His mom saw Brenton at the sink, and he hadn't showered yet, and his dad actually heard music and movement in Brenton's room that morning. Now, Detective Williams testified. He was one of the detectives that interviewed Brenton. He was part of the Jacksonville Homicide Team 3, along with Sergeant Joyner, Detective Darnell, and Glover. I think there was another one. I can't think of his name. But Glover was, was he part of the team or someone they called in? Well, they called him in. You don't think he was part of the team? He was just a closer? I don't know if he was their team. He was a homicide detective, Mm -hmm. and they brought him in. And as you said, he was the closer. Right. He's the guy who's going to get the confession. Right. 
And he did. Mm-hmm. Now, when Detective Williams is cross-examined, he says that no one else was interviewed and that they did do a thorough interview of Branton Butler. Branton was in a sound-resistant locked room, 10 feet by 10 feet, and he told them he was at home. They didn't allow him to call or have his parents come in. And he didn't have a gun. He didn't have a purse. purse was taken from her. He didn't have that. And he didn't own a fisherman's hat. The only hats he owned was a skull cap and a couple baseball caps. So one would think that at this point the police would say, okay, we need to investigate this. Right. Because if, if the eyewitness says that's the one, then you're going to want to make sure that that actually is the one. So let's track down these leads. Let's go to the parents' house and find out if there's a gun, find out what his hats are, find out a bunch of stuff, which they didn't do. They didn't do that. Now, they didn't get a search warrant to search Brenton's house. They didn't interview any neighbors, as I said. And then here's where we get a little bit of a talking to from one of the public defenders that took Brenton's case. His name is Pat McGinnis. Now, he talks about what he calls disciplining the witness. And this is cut into his cross-examination of Detective Williams, which just was a slaughter. We're getting ready to cross-examine this guy who's just testified for the prosecution. Correct. And yes, it is bloody. Bloody. Because this guy, I'm sorry, but he's just an idiot. This guy is horrible witness. I don't know how he does that job. Now, Pat McGinnis talks about how if you have a witness that's lying, you need to discipline them, you need to embarrass them and call them out on their lies and deficiencies, which he does beautifully with Detective Williams. He sure did. <laughs> now, on um, the September 25th under oath deposition of Detective Williams, he says that he told Brenton they could arrange an attorney for him, And at noon, he told him he had the right to an attorney. This is when they decided to arrest him. Said he would arrange for an attorney. But he admits to Mr. McGinnis that there was no follow-up done. There's a funny little part here about the public defender, Mr. McGinnis, says to Detective Williams, did you promise him an attorney? And we get into semantics about, well, I didn't promise. I didn't promise. I just said we can (laughs) get you one. Right. But I didn't promise that. Right. So if you had promised, then you would have, he says? Yeah, and even then he dodged it. <laughs> yeah. He said, well, I, I don't know if I would have, basically. Yeah. The guy's not smart. No. Not not a great communicator, for sure. No, well, he, he got eviscerated on the stand. Mm-hmm. Now, the purse had been found. It was found by a guy who collected cans for part of his living, and he found the purse in a dumpster. There was $1,200 in the purse. and So there goes robbery as a motive. Right. I mean, you get the purse, you're supposed to go through it, see what's in there, credit cards, money. Mm-hmm. So the purse was discarded with all that stuff in it. It was. Wow. Also, the purse was found nine and a half miles, a 20-minute drive away from where Mrs. Stevens was shot. So Brenton shot her, took her purse, Walked nine miles, because he doesn't drive. Right. Discarded the purse without taking the money or anything. Mm-hmm. And 
walk the nine miles back to his home. Right. Towards his home. Yeah. It just boggles the mind. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, as Mr. McGinnis pointed out, there are over a thousand dumpsters between the crime scene and where they found the purse. So there's a reason why the purse is in that dumpster. Part of that could be that it was a high crime area in where the purse was found. So probably the person who put it there was, was from that area. Was living in that area. Yeah. Sure. Now to put the trash in this dumpster, you have to lift these rubber flaps and put it inside. And the rubber flaps were never checked for fingerprints, nor was the purse. Yeah. And well, they, they wouldn't because they already had their guy. So you don't have to do anything else. That seems to be what happened, and that's why I just found this fascinating and sickening. Really sickening. Yeah, I guess it means we shouldn't get arrested in Jacksonville. No. Now, the man was very honest. He gave the purse to the police with the $1,200 in it. I give him a lot of credit right. for that. He, this is a guy living on canned money. Yeah, he called the police when he found the purse because he knew there was a murder. He didn't know the name of the person who was murdered, but he knew that some woman had been murdered, and he found a purse, and called the cops right away. Mm -hmm. And what do they say? They were not very nice to him. Doesn't sound like it. They, um, according to him, they said, boy, where's the gun? We know you took the gun. The witness, kind of an older guy, says, uh, you know, I found the purse. I took it to the police. There's no gun. I don't have a gun. But the police didn't really believe him, and they gave him a hard time. But fortunately, this guy knew how to stand up for himself. Yeah, he said, you can search me, you can search my cart. That's right. Buggy. He called his buggy. Buggy. Yeah. I don't have anything to hide. Yeah. So now another issue here was Brenton had bruises on his face and his abdomen. There were photos taken and given to the state's attorney. Now, he had fairly dark skin. It was hard to see the bruising, the photographer said. With darker skinned people, it can be hard to see the bruising, but you could definitely see the swelling in his, um, the left side of his face. Yeah, his left cheekbone was all swollen. Mm -hmm. And you could see bruising on his abdomen. You could, but according to people that saw it, they said it was so much worse in person. It looked so much worse. And the pictures really didn't do it any justice, they said. Well, it was still noticeable. Yes, it was. And when he came into the police station, he was not injured. He had no bruises. But he did later, so... So... Ipso facto, right. something happened to him while he's in custody. Yep. Now, Mr. McGinnis and Ann Finnell, the public defenders taking care of Brenton's case, gave these photos to the state's attorney to have them investigated. 
but McGinnis believes that there was a political reason why these photos were ignored to protect the detectives. Well, again, you're getting back to the idea that they already had the murderer, so we're not going to rock the boat. Hmm. Is it that simple? Yeah. You think so? Yeah, because they, they have the criminal. Let's make sure we get through the prosecution. Well, if you say that, then are you saying that these detectives don't care who really did it, have no interest in arresting the person who did it and could do it again? They want to have a killer out on the streets and they don't mind putting away an innocent child for life? Well, I'm going to give them a little bit of a break and say that they're relying too heavily on the eyewitnesses' account. Mm, you're um, giving them a lot more than I would. At worst, they're lazy fuckers that don't care and... They're going to go with what they got. That's at worst? Yeah. Say that's at best what they are. Oh, you're, you're bad. Bad. I am just being honest here. Now, this Detective Glover, who should be ashamed of himself, saying that Brenton hugged him and admitted to the shooting. Brent's aunt said that Brent is not the type of person who would jump up and hug anyone. He kind of mm -hmm. kept to himself which, you know, is normal for most teenagers. Yeah, they're not touchy-feely people. No. So the testimony for the prosecution of Detective Glover was, as you would expect, it was that he didn't raise his voice to Brenton, he didn't threaten or hit Brenton, that he just talked to him, you know, I guess black guy to black guy is what he's implying here. Yeah, man to man. Yeah, and that Brenton admitted it. Right, although... It took another detective to write it all down, but we'll find that out anyway. Right. The idea is that after Glover talked to him, he was ready to confess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, under the cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Pat McGinnis, and he was talking about how he cross-examined Detective Glover. What did he have to say about that? Well, McGinnis said in, in the sidebar, he didn't call him detective because he wanted him to feel uncomfortable and catch him off guard. Mm -hmm. Like oh. you said, Glover is a six foot tall, almost a six foot tall, 240 pound former football lineman. And his testimony, Glover's testimony, was that Brenton grabbed his hand, although he said held his hand. Yeah, I think he said that he held Brent, Brenton's hand to talk to him. But Brenton said that Glover grabbed his hand and held it down on the table in a threatening way. That makes more sense. Yeah. And he didn't ask about the gun. He didn't ask him what kind of gun or where it was or where'd you store it. No, he didn't ask Brenton where'd you get the gun, where'd you put the gun, nothing. Nothing. No. And then he says, well, Brenton said he threw the gun into the woods off the roadway. Right, and that's where we get the little, the little field trip out to the woods with Darnell and Williams and Joyner and Glover. They take Brendan into the woods. Glover took Brenton deep into the woods at dusk. That's where he hit him twice in the gut. And according to Glover, he was out of sight of the other detectives for 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, McGinnis said, you know, how, how long were you deep in the woods where nobody could see you or hear you? Right. And, of course, he denied that he struck Brenton, as I said, in the face or in the gut. He said if he had, he would definitely tell the defense attorney about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, I <laughs> took your defendant 
and beat the crap out of him. And I'm truly sorry, but here he is. Right. So because the detectives were not going to admit that they hit Brenton, and there was really no one else around to talk about it, the defender, Ann Fennell, decided that she needed to put Brenton on the stand to talk about the interrogation, the trip to the woods, all that stuff. Yeah, they have to get his side of the story out. Right. Because all you got is the police story is that he suffered these unknown injuries. They have no idea how it happened. That's right. And we clearly know that some injuries occurred because we have an unblemished kid going into questioning and a kid who'd been beaten up coming out. So what happened? Right. Yeah. So Brenton, um, he's on the stand, and he's asked about the interrogation. He says that he denied having anything to do with it, and that when Glover came in, Glover said, It's niggers like you that make me mad. So she asked Brenton, Did Detective Glover hit you? Yes, he did. He hit him in the stomach. Right. Fell to his knees got up, got hit again in his stomach, went down again, he's crying, and gets hit in the face. He says, you're pathetic, and hits him in the face. Then when she asked Brenton, did it hurt when you were hit? He says, yes, it did. She said, how hard did he hit you in the face? And Brent says, well, it wasn't a knockout punch, but it was a pretty good hit. So he's not even trying to play it up more than it was. He's just, I, I just got the impression he was just being very honest. So he also says that Detective Darnell told him to sign a form, and this was the confession form, and Brent said no. So the Detective Darnell put his hand on his holster and his gun, which you would take as a threat, I would imagine. So Brent asked, what are you going to do, kill me? And Detective Darnell said, you're damn right. Every 10 seconds that go by, I'm going to hit you. So 10 seconds go by, he hits him. Another 10 seconds, he hits him. Eventually, Brenton signs the confession form. Well, yeah, who wouldn't? Now, when Melissa Butler was on the stand, talking about how she saw Brent in the next room, that he hadn't showered yet, she says that police came to the house that morning after 9 o'clock, and they told her that they wanted to question Brenton to get information but it was not to accuse him of anything. So she didn't know that Brenton wasn't home, and she went and looked, and he wasn't home. So they didn't know where he was. And that's when they couldn't find him. They filed a missing persons report, and they didn't hear from Brenton until like 10 o'clock that night when he said he didn't do it, that he'd signed the form, and he was scared he'd be, he'd be in prison for the rest of his life. Now when Brenton's mom was testifying, Brenton started crying pretty hard in the court. Yeah, there were real big, huge tears rolling down his cheeks. Yeah, he's, he's been in jail for six months away from his family. I'm sure he's terrified. Gotta be. Mm -hmm. So then we have Detective Darnell being cross-examined by Pat McGinnis, the defender. This is um an entertaining cross-examination. It was. This, this was really, besides the cross-examination, just the sidebar about what McGinnis was talking about. But anyway, uh, Darnell wrote out the confession himself and had Brenton sign it. So who knows how much truth, if any, is in there. Mm -hmm. So 
Darnell says, I told Brenton that this was his last chance to tell his side of the story. So I got the form, they did it together. Right. Although Darnell wrote it and made Brenton sign it. Do you want to mention the little side video there? So about in the, the side break. video <laughs> with McGinnis, he talks about how they were finding themselves together out in the hallway or outside the courtroom. And McGinnis is a smoker. And from the documentary, he looks like a pretty heavy smoker. He's smoking a lot in the, in the movie, yeah. But he's smoking, and Darnell looks at him and says something about sucking down another cancer stick. And McGinnis <laughs> says, I always enjoy a cigarette before sex. And he says, because I wanted him to know I was going to screw him. <laughs> and I did, he and says. And I did. And this was um, a great cross-examination. Darnell seemed very smug, and he didn't seem quite as stupid as Williams. No, he, he seemed a little brighter. Yeah, but he seemed kind of cocky, and, yeah. well, there was no love lost between the two men, let's say that. None at all. No. So Darnell said that um, most of the people that give him a confession ask him to write it. Yeah, and... <laughs> McGinnis says, is that because of your excellent penmanship? Yeah, yeah, that was great. And um, the language and the sentences were changed to Darnell's words. Darnell admits that. He says that Brent admitted that he killed Mrs. Stevens and then went home to feed the dogs. Trying to make some sense of that, really there can be no sense made of why he would do that. Actually, McGinnis says, well... Why would he go home and feed the dogs? Why would he go look for a job at Blockbuster if he's just started this great career in armed robbery and made a big score? Right. He's just made $1,200. Yeah. He doesn't have to work the whole summer. That's right. He's all set. Except for one tiny little detail. He didn't do it. Exactly. Right. So Darnell says finally that he's saying what's in the confession. Darnell himself is saying the words. But he says that Brenton was agreeing to them and then signed the paper. Right. Now, when they get a confession, they have to have another detective in the video monitoring room so they can say, yes, I saw, I heard him confess. But Detective Williams might be the most honest of the three detectives. I don't know if it's because of his stupidity or if there's like an ounce of goodness in him. But he says he didn't hear Brenton say any of the things that were in the written confession. Well, if you're a cynical enough person, you'd say that he already realized how he totally fucked up and he wasn't going to compound it by lying some more. Maybe, but I don't know if he's bright enough to figure that out. Oh, you don't have to be that bright to figure it out. Yeah, maybe his boss could have told him that. Well, I think he could have <laughs> figured it out on himself. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> and then um, McGinnis asked, have you done anything to, he holds up the, confession he's got like a blown up you know board with the confession on it because he was pointing out a lot of things and he holds up the boards and he asks detective williams have you done anything to substantiate the facts of this confession and i already know the answer yeah he says no no he didn't feel like he needed to no but again they have from minute one had their suspect because yes. he was positively identified, so they're not doing anything else. 
but that's not how it's supposed to be done at I, all. I know that. But you get a, you get someone you think, okay, you think that's a good eyewitness, fine, but you need to substantiate what happened. You don't just say, okay, let's put him to prison for his life because well, one person identified him. Then they're lazy. Well, yeah, and I think stupid. that's part of it. I think but, that's another part of it. But they, they are definitely they, incompetent. They didn't do what they should have done. No. And verify the facts. No, they did not. They didn't even make an effort to. No. Nope. I mean, when they, through the interviews of all of these detectives, and it wasn't all shown, of course, it's a two-hour documentary, but not one of the detectives ever said that he interviewed anyone else. The only people interviewed were Mr. Stevens and Brenton Butler. They didn't even interview Brenton's parents. They didn't interview anyone in the area. They didn't do any searches in the area. It's just crazy. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we get to the closing arguments, and the prosecution's attorney, the prosecutor, says that Brenton Butler shot and killed Marianne Stevens, there's no doubt. And she relies heavily on her eyewitness testimony of James Stevens. That's really her her main ammunition well, here. It has to be, because that's the only thing she has. <laughs> that's right. Because they didn't do anything else to verify whether he is the perpetrator or not. No. So there's nothing other than the eyewitness saying that's the guy who did it. No, they didn't even check his hands for um, gunpowder. Is that what it is? Gunpowder that they... Yeah, gunpowder residue. Residue, yes. They didn't even do that, which... So could you do that in 2000? I believe so. I don't know. I'm not sure, anyway. but I believe so. It's not that long ago. Because I think that they have done that in other cases that were earlier, actually. But I can't think of any of them to say for sure. But she says that he identified Brenton two and a half hours after his wife was shot. She says that Brenton lives less than a mile from the scene. So, of course he's guilty if he lives less than a mile from the scene. Well, that's their timetable. They, they have to fit things in. Yeah. She does point out that when Brenton's mom sees him around 8 o'clock that morning, that he was walking past the laundry room. She made a point to say, that's where your cleaning supplies are kept. Yeah. She's desperate. <laughs> You know, she's trying to give a little bit of an idea there that he went to clean up. Of course, he didn't come out of the laundry room that anybody saw. He was no. just in the vicinity. Just walking down the hall outside the laundry room that morning. And he had the same clothes on as he did earlier. So he had changed clothes. He didn't come out naked. Nope. So. Nope. The prosecutor says that Brenton had plenty of time to commit the crime and that the defense allegations that the police beat Brenton and got him to sign a confession are just outrageous. She says, to believe the defense, you have to believe in a conspiracy worthy of Oliver Stone. Well, it doesn't have to be worthy of Oliver Stone. It just has to be a small conspiracy. Yeah. She says, and this part was a little clever on her part, she says that if you believe their allegations, I urge you to call the media, call the FBI, call anybody. Because this is an outrageous allegation. Right. It's like one of the other ones we did where the prosecutors said the testimony they agreed with because they're the prosecutors. 
basically. Yeah. Because yeah, we're we're on the path of righteousness, and you have to agree with us. Uh, or in the staircase when they said that um, right, you staircase. need to you need to believe our witnesses because they work for us. Right. They're tried and true. They're I remember that. that yeah, like that's and that means that they're correct just because they work for the state. So at the end of her closing argument, she holds up um, the mugshot of Brenton Butler and says, look at this person. This is a person who confessed, who told his side of the story like Detective Glover told you. And she reminds the jury of the eyewitness again, identifying Brenton by his face. By his face. By his face. His black face. I think that might have something to do with it. Well, sure. Although many of the jurors are African-American also. So then we have um, Pat McGinnis giving his closing arguments. And he starts out with a Winston Churchill quote. He says, Winston Churchill often said, The quality of a nation's civilization can be measured by methods its police use in the enforcement of criminal laws. Great quote. I don't know where he found it. <laughs> From the Winston Churchill thesaurus or someplace but that's that's a good quote mm -hmm. and he also says by that yardstick ladies and gentlemen we're in deep trouble yeah, for sure <laughs> yeah he says to the jury are you satisfied by this investigation which is a a reasonable question because i know i wouldn't have been yeah i think that was a rhetorical question okay <laughs> he explains mm -hmm. that um the police had a problem they had a murder it was a stranger murder, which is the most difficult murder to solve. And it requires diligent police work, forensic evidence, and careful investigation. So they go out looking for black people. They come across a boy going to apply for a job, a boy who works, who has worked before. He buys his own clothes and his own CDs. And he says the prosecution will have you believe at age 15 that Brenton Butler gets up eats his yogurt, and decides to go out and kill somebody. <laughs> and then goes home, feeds his dogs. That's right. Uh, Brenton has never been seen with a gun. No. Never been in trouble before with the law. Right, so he's just starting out feet and first. He doesn't fit the description that the guy gave of the killer. No, he actually says something about that. What did he say about the description? Well, he said he was four inches shorter than the description, mm -hmm. five to ten years younger. Right. He has the logo so, on his shirt. Right, and doesn't have the hat. Right. And doesn't have a gun. Right. Mm -hmm. He also says that how he talks about how the detectives brought Brenton out to the woods and how the other detectives distanced themselves from Glover and Butler. He says, why wouldn't they look for the gun with Glover and Brenton? If this is the guy who says, I threw the gun here, why aren't they all looking for it? He also says that Glover was right-handed, and if you're going to hit someone face-to-face, -face, you're right-handed, you're going to hit the left side of their face, which is where Brenton's face was swollen. Right. And he says that Brenton went into custody uninjured, but he didn't end up that way. Nobody ever, I mean, they denied hitting him, but nobody had an explanation for how he suffered those injuries. No, they didn't they, even try and come up with anything. It just happened. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the 
detectives were pretty confident that they were going to get this kid put in prison for this. They were going to get him convicted, which is mind-boggling. Just mind-boggling. They said he was the one that did it. Yeah. So, Pat McGinnis, my favorite lawyer now, I have to say. He says that there's still a 20 to 25-year-old man out there wearing a dark shirt who still has a functioning gun. And someone else will likely get shot and killed, and that is because no diligent investigation was done by the police. Very effective closing argument. Yeah. So, the jury goes out, and we get a verdict in 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Really quick. And they must have had at least a five-minute bathroom break in the beginning. So either they come back quickly because they think he's innocent, <laughs> or they all think he's guilty. That's right. Yeah. I would hope that they all thought he was innocent. Mm-hmm. Now, I just love that Finnell and McGinnis fight for their client. I feel like public defenders get a bad name, and you know some of them probably earn that bad name. Well, you think they're all in bed with the prosecution and they're willing to make deals and cut corners. I think in many cases they are. But these two, this is what we want our public defenders to be. This is what we want for people to have. Yeah, these these two are tigers. Mm -hmm. They're not buddies with the police. They don't mind standing up for their client. I just love that about them. So they came back in 45 minutes, as you mentioned, and they found him innocent of the charge of murder and they found him innocent in the charge of theft not because guilty. that was the yep. second charge so not guilty for both that's right and there are some happy people in that courtroom this kid has a big family a big very supportive family a big extended family mm-hmm. and they were ecstatic and they love these defenders as well yep. they're hugging them and kissing them so Hopefully this kid can get on with his life without being too scarred. That's right. He's not guilty. So that's good. Yeah. So it's four months later in 2001 that Pat McGinnis gets a tip from a public defender client. And this person had been in a cell with another man, Juan Curtis. Juan Curtis had admitted being the shooter in the Stevens case. <laughs> mm-hmm. He said he shot Mrs. Stevens because she'd thrown a hot cup of coffee at him during the course of an armed robbery. Now, yeah. Mr. Stevens had never mentioned that, but, you know, he was put through a trauma. I certainly don't blame him for that. Well, and maybe that's just the excuse for shooting the person. That's true. It doesn't yeah. sound like a very valid excuse, but, yeah, I shot her because she threw hot coffee on me, so what else could I do? Yeah, he could have been bragging. Who knows? This guy had a history of armed robbery in Florida. He was, I don't know if I'd say a career criminal, but I'd say that he was a criminal. Well, let's just say he was not a good person. That's right. And he was in jail for something else, obviously. So yeah. this wasn't his first brush with the law. Now, finally, the purse was processed, and a fingerprint of Juan Curtis was found on Mrs. Stevens' purse. Holy cow. Yeah. This is like a year later? Yeah. From the original event? Yeah, it's four months after the verdict. Yeah. And, and they've had the purse for quite some time. Yeah, they never and, they and never they tested didn't. it for fingerprints, <laughs> if you can believe it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they finally do test it, and it's his fingerprint. That's or right. Or thumbprint, or some print. 
Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, the witness ID was incorrect. And if not for the public defenders, the wrong person would be in prison. Oh, as far as eyewitness testimony, you said that over 50%? At, in... at least 50%. So, more than that. So maybe we shouldn't be giving it that much weight. Maybe we're giving it too much weight in court. Well, I think so. Although, I think another contributing factor was that this, these particular police homicide detectives just didn't care enough to investigate and verify what was going on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if, if you get an eyewitness, you want to make sure that that's correct. So you verify what he said. Right. They didn't care about that. No, they didn't. Well, they certainly didn't do it. I know in the epilogue that the two detectives aren't detectives anymore. They're just regular police officers. And Glover doesn't even work in the police department anymore. Well, one thing we didn't mention about Glover is that he became a detective in 1995 with no experience. And that his father was the sheriff. A little nepotism there. A little bit. But he's not even in law enforcement anymore. No, which is probably a good thing. I don't think he should have been in law enforcement to begin with. Probably not. So is there anything else you want to say about this case? Only one <laughs> thing left to say. Okay. Look very carefully at eyewitness accounts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, and I wanted to add that Pat McGinnis had said that after this case, they were able to get a law passed in Florida that any interrogations need to be videotaped. So all interrogations in Florida now are videotaped from beginning to end, which is a great step. That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And I would also add that all interrogations of teenagers ought to be done with parents present. I agree with you. And um, like I said, most places in Europe do have that law. And I'm surprised that we don't. It just seems... To me, it uh, seems common sense. I mean, you know, teenagers have brains wired differently than yes. adults. And it would seem to be worthwhile to have a parent or a parent figure there. Well, they're not legally allowed to make health care decisions for themselves. They're not Many decisions. They can't allowed drink. to do much of anything. Right. So why in this case do we not need the parent's permission? It's ludicrous. Yes, Okay, well, thanks. Hey, that was a good case. I liked it. Now, True Crime Brewery, we are available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe for as low as $2 a month on our website, www.tigrabber.com. You can also support us with a contribution at patreon.com forward slash truecrimebrewery. We encourage everyone to leave ideas and opinions in an iTunes review, and any five-star reviews will be shared on a future episode. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye-bye. Goodbye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.